everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have the latest in our series on progressive prosecutor candidates. Laura Conover is running for county attorney in Pima County, Arizona, home of Tucson. According to her bio, she dedicated her career helping the Southern Arizona community by defending the poor, advocating for victims, and fighting for justice in local and federal courts. She decided to run for the position of Pima County attorney to bring much-needed reform to Southern Arizona's criminal justice system. Welcome to our show, Laura. David, thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. It's an honor to join you. Well, thank you. Um, so tell us a bit about your background and why you're running for county attorney. I'm out here in Tucson, uh, and this is the this is Pima County. Uh, we, you know, we call it the DA, of course, almost everywhere else, although this office is responsible as county attorney for both the criminal and the civil unit, interestingly, um, in a quite complex twist. And I'm a lifetime Tucsonan, I, and I'm this invested in our community and raising a family here that when the seat came open, uh, I had to ask the tough question whether I could be a, a first-time candidate. David, out here in Pima County, we've had a 40-year partnership between Steve Neely and Barbara LaWall. She was his second-in-command. And so it's been a 40-year administration. And I firmly believe that even a good agency must embrace change in order to stay healthy. And this seems to be the moment in time where Pima County, yes, even in Arizona, can wisely embrace change and embrace criminal justice reform as fantastically more responsible to the taxpayer and also supremely more humane. This seems to be the moment in time uh, where we can where we can do this even out here in, in Arizona. So it's interesting. You mentioned even out here in Arizona, um, just last <laughs> week I was talking with Junie Gunnigal, who's running in Maricopa County. Um, and That's so I'd be really interested to hear um, some of the issues in Pima County and how that might uh, be similar to what's going on to the North of you. 
That's that's wonderful, and and they're engaged in quite the battle up there uh, in the Phoenix area, and and Julie and I have exchanged a lot of conversations, as well as a couple of others who who are running on true reform platforms. Uh, the situation is is a little different here in Pima County. We have two in-house violent crime prosecutors running. Uh, from from inside the agency, and between them combined, they have 50 years uh, exclusively of violent crime prosecution. And I'm a firm believer that every every agency in the country has and will have a strong violent crime unit. But when we advance a violent crime prosecutor into the top administrator's job, I think we take this really specific niche set of skills and then we try to make an administrator out of them and I think it creates this tunnel vision where a prosecutor has been devoting their whole life to the most extreme and rare cases in a community and loses sight of the health and safety of the entire community and I think it actually keeps us less safe and less healthy so I'm I'm the candidate running from outside the agency I've I've been a government attorney. I've done defense work in the last four years. I've done victim advocacy work. I've done security clearance work. I've worked for in large scale construction and fiber optics companies to help them hire people coming back out of prison, getting them back to work. And then a year and a half ago, the federal bench, the judges on federal court. Uh, appointed me to represent all 400 contract attorneys district-wide. And that was sure management by fire right before the government shutdown. Um, but th- that's a broad set of diverse skills that I bring as a, a small business owner to bring into a true leadership role that is responsible for Southern Arizona's largest law firm. I think you raised an interesting point because uh, – the tunnel vision mindset is really powerful. I remember a prosecutor telling me a few years ago, you know, when when you prosecute catalytic converter crimes, you tend to think that catalytic converter is the biggest problem facing an area. Um, and so you kind of get locked into that mindset. Precisely. It's exactly what I'm experiencing, David, is that... Um, in fact, you know, the legal system as a whole, I've always believed, um, married to someone with a doctorate in administration and watching him get that doctorate, um, I've always believed that the whole legal system as a whole has suffered from a problem where where we're, we're in a, a very dynamic, you know, extreme, unique trial. And we look at the prosecutor and we say, wow, that's a brilliant closing argument that person should manage people and and that's and that's how we have historically often lifted people into supervisory and administrative roles is that they are brilliant in the courtroom and that's a wonderful skill but they've devoted their life to that skill and they've built it working on only the most extreme cases that have ever um come across and come through the county i i believe that we have to start advancing leaders who want to train and manage 
what is often a group of young prosecutors who are carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders, trying to keep the entire community safe and sound. You need a budget manager who reframes the priorities and, and gets away from spending the whole budget on low-level nonviolent drug offenders. You need someone who knows how to reframe the priorities to go after who's actually harming the community, like fraud and scam that don't get, unfortunately, any attention out here, hardly at all. Um, you need a you need a community partner, out transparent, accessible, available to the community, and not just answering the call to the community, but actually out living in the community and working together to know what what the harms are. Um, who's involved in the school system to make sure we're intervening for children before they ever even get wrapped up in the criminal justice system. It's 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 truly a a daunting and a humbling position to run such a massive county agency. And I think we need to look at who we put into these positions in order to, to try to bring real progress. So just to kind of set the stage, um, Tucson is the main city in the county, but how many overall people are, what's the population of the county? You know, it. I've been laughing. It's a big, beautiful county. Um, it's. I think we're we're past the million mark now. When you when you count the county as a whole, and we have, you know, wonderful, beautiful rural populations that you know it takes an hour to get to outside of Tucson, where the University of Arizona is. Um, and so I've been traveling all over into retirement communities that. Um, that are worried about fraud and scam, uh, rural communities like Ajo and Roldis Junction who are worried about um, larger scale uh, drug problems and drug trafficking. Um, and, and then some of our uh, suburbs outside of Tucson as well, uh, who are concerned that we're, we're spending almost 60% of the county budget on law and order here in Pima County and not getting results for it. It's not outcome-based here right now. I, I think that over this 40 years, we went from tough on crime and the war on drugs, and when the popularity of that started to wane, it became a numbers game. How many people can we convict each year? And that entrenched philosophy is still completely alive and well this office broke the record, the all-time record in Superior Court um, record tracking and filed almost 7,000 felonies last year at a time where our Republican sheriff says that the crime rate is down. Um, and, and each year, this office approaches the Board of Supervisors and, you know, asks for, for an, a budget increase, but without producing results that are responsible to the taxpayer. And that's, that's, that's one of the beauties of criminal justice reform is that it, it is so much more responsible that treatment is a third of the cost. And then it allows you to free up resources and, and smart minds to, to go after um, more difficult crimes to, to prosecute, investigate and prosecute. So how many candidates are there overall and, and when is the election itself? So there, there are three of us. So we have the two 
the two violent crime prosecutors on the inside and then and then myself. Um, so it's a three-way Democratic primary. We don't have any candidates currently filed uh, from any other party for the general. So we continue to believe this will likely get decided when mail-in ballots are mailed out to the homes to voters in July. So there's a July 6th registration deadline, and then the ballots will start rolling out, and August 4 is the actual election day. So that makes for an interesting dynamic because you have the two insiders kind of duking it out. Is the department uh, divided over who to back? Yes, I, I believe it likely is. What I know very well and hear quite a bit from, from inside the agency is that there is a tremendous retention problem. I mean, the data is very clear that this office has a significant retention problem compared to every other of the six or seven legal offices across the agency. Um, so it's not just pay. Uh, there's, a, there's a serious morale problem. And I, I tend to think that having two, you know, lead, longtime leaders within the office uh, competing against each other um, I think shows that the office is not pleased office-wide with uh, the anointed heir. And so we had, we had a, a second prosecutor jump in who, um, who's been there even longer. And, and the retention problem, you know, cuts both ways, David. It's, it has to be addressed. It's abysmal whoever comes in needs to be ready to breathe fresh air into there, recruit prosecutors from our community who know our community, partnering with the law. We have a wonderful law school, um, partnering with them to, to recruit and then hire and train and then, and then trust them with discretion. I think that's at the root of the morale problem. And, and I tend to think that for the reform candidate, as I am, that the retention problem is a is a horrible issue for our community, but it does give us a chance to help with culture change. I, you know, I'm I'm interested in responsible and meaningful reform. I'm not. I have no plans to go in there and and you know burn it down and build it back up. That's not my philosophy. Um, but I do think we can shift culture, which is hard. That's a very hard task after 40 years. I think we can shift culture by hiring a huge group of bright, brand new young attorneys and then bringing in really high quality ethical leadership to, to train them and inspire them. Yeah, you kind of anticipated uh, my question because, you know, I – I just interviewed Larry Krasner, for instance, and one of the first things he did was lay off a whole bunch of people. I'm out here in California, and the first week that Chase Bodine was in office in San Francisco, he laid off six supervisors. Uh, so you don't have plans, at least at this point, to uh, do some kind of mass firing. I I, I read that, and and... I imagine that, that that's, you know, firing someone, and I have had to do that as a manager, is, is one of the absolute hardest tasks. 
I tend to think that's going to be an easier um, lift for me here because literally the retention problem is so horrendous that we don't really even have a middle class, uh, a middle group of veterans inside the group. You know, there's a ton of brand new attorneys that only stay a couple years and then leave quickly uh, for other counties or, or the feds or other tiny jurisdictions. Um, and so I, I tend to think that those who stay are ready for change and are going to embrace it and, and give us a chance. Um, and it's still going to leave a lot of room to bring in some really heavy hitters, some prestigious leader, ethical leaders to, to come in and help with the culture shift. Uh, so I, I don't think it's going to be the issue that, that other managers have had to face across, across the nation. I really want to shift here to talking about the issues because I, I've been talking to people across the country and what really impresses me is how much of an issues-based movement this really is, um, that you have people and, and it's really interesting because you talk to people and they all kind of speak the same language, but it's all rooted in their local experience. And so it's not like somebody's, you know, created this boilerplate of how to run progressive campaigns. It, It really is organic. I agree. No, I agree. I think you just articulated perfectly. We all have things in common. Um, and I've studied other campaigns and previous candidates. We all have things in common, but locality really is, it, it, and the culture of the locality drives it. I, I completely agree, David. Um, so what are your main issues? Well, we, we, we just concluded talking about retention, you know, as far as the first 100 days, you know, the things that are going to be on fire to deal with. I, bail reform is, is a huge issue out here. We are still relying on this system where the line prosecutors are, are requiring bonds. And, of course, it produces exactly the outcome we expect. There are people, the poor Poor people, people suffering from addiction, people suffering mental illness are held on $500 cash bonds that they can't pay. And the taxpayers end up paying for the jail like a warehouse to just keep people in jail needlessly. Whereas the, let's say, engineer charged with an extremely violent crime, pays the $50,000 bond and walks right back out into our community. That, you know, I can change that script overnight. And I, I have an extensive federal background where I watch federal prosecutors every morning in court argue exclusively over dangerousness, whether the person would be a danger to release post-arrest or whether they were a flight risk and wouldn't be coming back for their next court hearing. And these prosecutors had studied up on everything available up to date, you know, I mean, you know, shortly after the arrest. They argued their cases vociferously. The defense attorneys would provide creative opportunities and, and, and alternatives to custody. And the, the actual merits would be, would be argued. And then the judge would be left to decide exclusively whether the person was a danger or a flight risk or both, 
and that would control whether they would be detained for the rest of their case. You know, that's, that's common sense. And it gets rid of that disparity where only the poor are trapped in jail. So that's a, that was a tipping point for me, actually, David. Um, I, I was having trouble finding the personal courage to be a first-time candidate for a massive county. And I was in court in November, and I, and I heard the young prosecutor just read from the script. And he said, we oppose release, keep him held on this $500 bond. If circumstances change, file a motion. Even though the judge and the defense attorney were both complaining that the person could only get probation even if they lost at trial. And I said, I cannot abide this. I, I could change that script overnight. And I think that pushed me into the final push and literally filing for office the following week. Um, and then how do you propose to offer decarceration, the end of mass incarceration? I think here in Pima County, because we continue to spend the bulk of county resources, the bulk of, of the budget on low-level nonviolent drug offenders, we're, we're going to get the benefit of a significant reduction when we shift those priorities, when we work on treatment interventions earlier. I, I think that's how our burglary rings actually are created because of instead of treatment, people are arrested, jailed, released, arrested, jailed, released, they get no treatment, and in fact, become so desperate that I, I really think that's how our burglary rings are formed. So I think you get a double benefit there. Um, and I, so I, I really see a reduction based only on that. Uh, and then, and then we're going to be looking at, um, the rest of the population beyond that, but that's going to give us a really healthy start. And how do we reduce the racial disparity in the system, especially those going to prison? It, it's a problem here. It remains a problem here, as it does in way too many parts of the country. And I think that the rest of the country is is familiar with the horrifying racial disparity of of the, the black population being in jail and prison at, at an alarming rate as compared to their their percentage of the population. Out here, again, with locality, that is also true, but it's also our huge Hispanic population and our Native population. So we have a three-part racial disparity problem that has to be addressed. It, it requires a leader that studying and tracking the data and then transparent about it. You have to have the courage to confront the reality of the disparity and then start setting benchmarks uh, on, on going after it and, and then being transparent about that. I think that's the way to be accountable to, to the issue and to go after it. Um, I, I think that our plan to to reform the priorities in and of itself will help, but I've also studied and I'm very excited about the concept 
that simply hiring prosecutors from within the community, having grown up in the community, knowing the community, active in the community, when you when you make your office diverse in an appropriate way that reflects the community where you live, the disparities immediately start to decline um, just based on on that alone. And that's just an exciting prospect right there. And how do your opponents talk about these issues, or do they? David, I, d- I don't think they do. Uh, they their their entire career it's it's 50 years combined is this administration and these so these priorities have not been tackled by them or or in their administration they are starting to talk reform they are new students to reform they have gone after some big national grants and i i thank them and i applaud their recent efforts in the last couple of years to to start to look at reform, but I think due to the very nature of, of a long-standing administration, it's, it's very unfamiliar to, to all of them, and the community's trying to help, but it, I have suggested that electing an authentic lifetime student of reform is going to be the the more reliable method to bring in actual change. I, David, out here in Tucson, the local police department literally has a deflection program where officers are trained to evaluate an arrest right on the street and choose treatment rather than even bringing the person into the criminal justice system. That's outstanding, and it means law enforcement looking at reform. It means they're ready for reform. It means the community's ready for reform. And but I tell you, I think part of their success in that and their motivation to do that is because they're not wanting to bring it to this county attorney's office. They're literally deflecting away from this prosecutor's office uh, in order to get true reform moving uh, even in advance of the election. So I certainly am advocating that we elect someone who's walked the walk her entire life. Well, that's really interesting. Um, So on the issue of police accountability, is that uh, a factor uh, in Pima County? And if so, what is your proposal? It it is a factor. um, And it's one of these similar sort of to the retention problem when you have kind of a huge um, vacuum, you uh, the absence of of kind of personnel or the absence of of resources, it kind of creates an opening to really put in what what your new vision is for the community. So, for example, David, here the city has had a police oversight committee for decades, but the county has never had one over the sheriff's department. They looked at creating a commission a couple of years ago, and I, I got to be kind of a legal advisor for that commission, but it didn't get off the ground. It, ground, it got derailed um, by a huge fight over federal grants um, and the restrictions they were putting on the county. 
But I really see that as the seedlings for what can be a citizens oversight committee for the sheriff's department. And I really think the county will benefit from that. And so it's one of those examples where, where nothing exists. You can really go after the best practice and, impl- and implement something that's going to drive the county forward. And in terms of the county attorney's office holding uh, police accountable, prosecuting potential crimes? We, I would say we have the, the makings for tremendous conflict there. We are, we are not set up well at all to handle it. And it's actually an issue that's coming up again right now in the county. Um, we're going to need to take steps to create a separate independent commission that can handle that. It's, it's not been created. And it, what, what happens, David, is the prosecutors who are working hand in hand with law enforcement to keep the community safe are then the same people tasked with looking at, um, officer misconduct. And it's, it's just, it's a terrible conflict. And my plan is to, to work arduously at that. Um, and it's, it's a little complicated. It's going to have to do with both the criminal unit and the civil unit being warehoused underneath the county attorney. But there's room there to screen off and try to get at the root problem of the conflict so that we can have truly neutral minds evaluating the complaints. And not only that, David, but we can have a body that our prosecutors feel comfortable taking issues to so that we get early reporting instead of 30 years later finally reporting something that leads to an exoneration. You know, I want to create a culture where young prosecutors go to their supportive, uh, wise supervisors and, and say right there, I've got a terrible feeling there's something really wrong with, with this case. Will you look at it? Should we send it to this independent, independent body for review so that we get, we get error, we confess error as soon as possible while cases are pending? I hate to see these cases 30 years later where those, those heavy doubts from 30 years earlier are only getting investigated now. So along those lines, what, does Pima County have in terms of a wrongful conviction unit at this point? David, we, I, I sigh heavily because we, we have one of the most notorious cases. Um, when it, when it comes to this, we, we had a 16 year old prosecuted for a fire that, that consumed 40 lives here in the 70s when a hotel went up in flames and a 16-year-old busboy who we absolutely know helped rescue people out of the fire went into the fire and helped rescue people out ended up getting prosecuted for the fire and it's a case that continues to haunt our community even to this day um, because the evidence you know, the serious doubts were not pursued. There was an allegation that the fire inspector had some horribly racist 
philosophies that infected his investigation. And, um, and I got to tell you, David, this, this, this young man, you know, who's now, you know, after 42 years of incarceration, they never fully exonerated him. You know, they, they, they forced him to take a, a no contest plea and then created a, a like an integrity unit um to be honest david it's it's probably something that i'm going to be looking at maybe redesigning i i hold in high regard the prosecutors who went after the integrity unit and demanded it and and wanted to see its creation in the office but it's one of those things that that may need a complete reset to make sure that we're getting these things right. I obviously disagree with the outcome on that particular um, case. And, and I don't, I don't want to see my office, my future office, um, make these kinds of errors again. Yeah, it's really incredible. I mean, I, I talk to people all over the country, and it's a similar story. There are two types of wrongful conviction units. One which is kind of on paper and one that actually goes in and finds people that were wrongly convicted and exonerates them. Well, and we have it, we have an Arizona Innocence Project. So it's, you know, what's amazing is we don't have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, we can really breathe true life into it. You know, we can devote resources. Talk about reframing priorities, right? When we have increased resources because we've got common sense criminal justice reform going on in the next few years, we can we can partner and we can devote resources. We don't have to um, we don't have to invent what's already there. There are brilliant minds, just like there are all over the nation. Thank goodness, working on these cases, these old cases that relied on on very questionable um, testimony of, of state's witnesses. David, we, there's a long history here. We fell victim to that dental expert who, you know, back in the 80s claimed he could he could match bite marks. Um, you know, I've, I've met the man exonerated off of death row, off of Phoenix, out of Phoenix, um, who fell, fell victim to that testimony. Um, so luckily, we have the teams of attorneys here here at the ready, and that's that's another way to bring in exciting law students, right? I mean, talk about a training in the law schools in innocence work. Um, they they would make the perfect prosecutors. And is the Arizona Innocence Project out of the University of Arizona? I think it's in collaboration between both universities. I know that each each of the law schools uh, is devoted to this to this kind of work. Um, yeah, the Justice Project um, is you know does eyewitness identification reform, has pushed for the recordings of interrogations. Um, you know, it's, it's so in other words, it's there, but it'll be fantastic to have a vocal county attorney supportive of the efforts. And then finally, kind of give us your closing thoughts, um, things that maybe I didn't ask or 
uh, other thoughts that you have about your race or the state of criminal justice reform? Well, David, I don't know if we talked about um, some of the reforms that become available when when we stop putting all of our resources to low-level nonviolent drug offenders. We haven't had a meaningful financial crimes unit in this office in over 20 years. And David, when, again, when you talk about locality, we have a huge problem out here with all of our retirement communities where our parents and grandparents are getting calls all day long and they, they sound so official. Your social security number has been compromised. Um, that Those are annoying to us, but our parents and grandparents are falling victim to it. And, and these brazen artists set up shop right here, knowing that, that we took our eye off the ball. So reform for us out here means that we we move people into treatment. We stop trying to prosecute homelessness, drug addiction, and mental illness. We move people into treatment and we create a healthier community where we're not separating parents from children unnecessarily, where we're keeping people working. And then we go after the people who, who are preying upon our vulnerable populations out here. And that's that's what I'm hoping to see is is a healthier community going forward, and and I really appreciate David the opportunity to share share this vision with you. Definitely. Well, we are just about out of time. I wanted to thank you for being on our show. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. This has been Everyday Injustice. We were talking with Laura Conover, who is running in Pima County, Arizona, for the county attorney's office. She's running against two veteran prosecutors from the same office, which should be a very interesting primary coming up in July. This has been Everyday Injustice. We will be back next time for some more episodes from the criminal justice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.